Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Art of Living Author interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and as part of our Art of Living series about living our best selves, today's show and interview will be an excellent program about the boomer generation. <laughs> no surprises here. The historic disruption that occurred during this time of the boomer generation, and is, is still going on, and the aftermath. What's next and what's to come? Our guest today is Washington Post journalist and author Philip Bump, who has written the new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Thank you so much for listening today. We have got a great guest today with author Philip Bump, who is a journalist and author and who, after reading his new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, I have been looking forward to speaking with him for a while. I'll introduce him in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 697th episode when I spoke to Smithsonian Associate, Newsweek editor, journalist, and author during our Black History Month series, author Mark Whitaker, who has written the new book, Saying It Loud, 1966, the year Black Power Challenged the Civil Rights movement. Two weeks ago, I spoke with 79-year-old author Rick Blyweiss, who is the perfect example of saying, you're never too old to follow your dreams. Wonderful subjects, especially during our Black History Month for our Not Old Better Show audience. If you missed those shows, along with any others, you can go back, check them out with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. Today, author Philip Bump says that we are living through a historic disruption of the American empire. Philip Bump is the Washington Post national columnist and will tell us about what that disruption means for the country and how much remains uncertain in many areas. But Philip Bump will explain to us in a no-stone-unturned manner as he takes us through his deep research graphs and offers a detailed look at the rise of the baby boom generation, its impact on the United States, and the implications of its final days, including the rise of the meme, OK Boomer. So the way he tells it, Peter Cooley was waiting to pick up a prescription at CVS when he noticed that a bunch of people he knew were remixing a jokey track by his friend Jonathan Williams. This is how it works sometimes in a certain segment of the online music community. People create a song and then share the pieces to be remixed and reused. Cooley, not to be left out of the goofiness he saw on his phone, went back to his dorm room in Champlain College in Vermont and quickly created his own iteration. He saw its potential. Quote, I messaged Jonathan on Twitter and I said, you should totally put your song on TikTok, Cooley recalled to me. I think tweens would really get a kick out of it. But Miller shrugged, encouraging Cooley to put up his remix instead. And Cooley did. Uh, The rest is kind of history there, Cooley said, with little exaggeration. If you're reading this book, it's fairly likely you may not spend an inordinate amount of time on TikTok. It's the evolution of a music-specific app called Musical.ly that encouraged users to sing along with existing tracks, pushing people to offer their own interpretations of popular featured music. So when Cooley put his song on TikTok, a few of his friends made videos to accompany it. And then within a week, its popularity exploded. Quote, eventually it just got this kind of snowball effect, he told me. It got a little out of hand. It got out of hand very quickly. So what does getting out of hand look like, I asked. Well, he told me, the New York Times article. That article did, in fact, get somewhat out of hand. It was centered not on the song itself, but on the song's title, which had picked up on an increasingly popular online meme, dismissing baby boomers as out of touch or embarrassing. That song was called OK Boomer. That, of course, is our guest today, author and journalist Philip Bump, reading from his new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom, and the Future of Power in America. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast author and journalist, Philip Bump. 
Philip Bump, welcome to the program. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks very much for reading today to us. I hope you and yours are all doing well. I uh, I enjoyed the book. Uh, again, the title is The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. It's a great title. It's a great book. As I was preparing for our interview, I, I checked out um, several of your, your recent articles from the Washington Post, um, the State of the Union address article that you wrote uh, when President Biden challenged the Republicans for seeking to cut Medicare, your analysis that you did on the Treasury Department's daily, de- de- daily debt figures, all of the charts and graphs that accompanied those articles. They're really impressive. They, they very much are, are a genuine integrated part of your reporting and your writing. And the book, The Aftermath, is full of these amazing charts and data. I wonder what inspires you. Is it the graph, the idea that you can kind of tell this really kind of numerical story? Or is it the story that you have in your mind and then you use the graph to kind of add to that? I would say it's more often the case that there is a particular bit of data that I think is worth highlighting or elevating for readers that drives what I end up writing about. Um, you know, that's not the case with the book. Obviously, the book uses data to support the, the overall thesis. Uh, but for most news articles, uh, they they are short enough and punchy enough that it's it's usually focused on data. But it's often the case, too, that I will be writing something and the way my mind naturally works is to seek out data to support you know, whatever it is that I'm writing about. And so often data will work its way into a non-data centric story simply by virtue of the fact that my little brain likes to add numbers in there. <laughs> well, the, the, it's all very impressive and, and it's very helpful too, I, I found. I, I noted too in my research that you you have an Adobe design background and it worked as a, a de- as a designer. And so it would seem to me that the graphs and all of the metrics, the, the data helped to tell those stories. They certainly did that for me. How did you get started using the graphs and the data? Does that go back all the way to your, your work at Adobe? Yeah, I've always been, uh, I, I've always been good at math. Just to sort of start there, Mm -hmm. you know, ever since I was a little kid. And then uh, when I was in college, I had a job working in a computer lab from midnight to 8 a.m., which I realized only a couple of years ago don't exist anymore. But back in the day, not everyone had a computer. (laughs) And so you had to go to a big room and, you know, write your papers and print stuff out. But I worked at one of those and then literally from midnight to 8 a.m., right when HTML was emerging. So I saw myself how to do stuff online, how to how to how to do basic coding on HTML and then eventual actual coding on Hmm. on Perl and things like that. Uh, and so I had wow, this joint background of of putting information online and doing data analysis, which is you know essentially what coding is uh, when it's distilled to its essence. Uh, and so I had a blog. You know, I've had a blog. I had a blog prior to working for the Post since 2000 or so, uh, and I would just riff on what I saw in the news and pull out numbers from the news. And eventually, I just decided that's what I wanted to do. And you know, it's it's a fairly unique skill set to be able to both write about the news and incorporate data analysis. Uh, and so I've had a home at the Post now for nine years. So you're right, I was at Adobe for a while. And so the, basically the advantage that it gave me is it made me very, very adept at using Adobe Illustrator, which is what I use for <laughs> most of my graphs, so I can make graphs very, very quickly, uh, which you know, it, which is obviously advantageous. Right, right, certainly advantageous. And, and, and again, helpful for somebody like me to really see this. We live in this kind of this era uh, Kelly Kellyanne Conway coined this term alternative facts. Um, I, I wonder, do, do, you, do you see the data and the metrics as being kind of 
binary and more hard and fast and and uh and maybe removing some of the emotion from the, some of the stories today because the the facts and the data and the metrics that you use really add this um this weight to what you're saying in 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 the text and so i i found it again i found it very helpful and so i wonder if you're if you're doing that for a purpose it, it's almost as though the graphs, the metrics, they just leave little room for misinterpretation. Well, I mean, it, it really is the case that my mind just sort of thinks in, in terms of numbers and, and data, uh, which, you know, predisposes me to wanting to include them. But I, I really view data as just another source in the same way that for the book I spoke with, you know, scores of different people who had expertise uh, that could inform the subject. There was, you know thousands of data sources which could do the same right so when we're talking about the scale of the baby boom its effects on uh, the population's effects on jobs its effects on education there exist data sets which can give you a better and more objective sense of what was happening than simply talking to you know seeking out the, the great expert on the boomers that exists out there in the world and you know getting quotes from that person uh, data is a is a source of information in the same way that talking to someone is and so I uh, happen to be adept at it and availed myself of it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't mean to say that the the book is just this sterile analysis. It, it's wonderful. It's getting rave reviews. Again, the title of the book is The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. What makes the boomers so unique and, and worthy of, of your book? And um, how do these metrics that the demographic markers distinguish boomers from other generations so the the boomers are unique simply by virtue of scale right so there were in 1945 there were about 140 million people in america and over the course of the next two decades 19 years uh, another 76 million people were born right and it's just it's a staggering number right you know right now there's 330 million people in america it's essentially as though 165 million babies were born over the next two decades it's just a crazy crazy uh ratio to, to suddenly emerge and it reached it forced america to change in all sorts of different ways you know instantaneously you got to start thinking about the, the massive economy for babies that that springs up you got to think about where are you where are you going to what schools are you going to put them in are enough schools you know and that 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 process of accommodating the boom as it aged continues to this day. Now we see this big surge in older Americans that is accompanying the aging of the baby boom, and we're scrambling to figure out how to deal with that. And that the, you know that's under recognized as a factor uh, in our politics in the moment. Uh, but you're right; the baby boom itself looks different than younger Americans in a lot of ways. Uh, one way is very literally that the baby boom is much less diverse than uh, our younger generations, uh, in part because the baby boom emerged at a time when immigration was at an historic low, uh, because immigration was restricted by law, uh, in part simply because America was whiter in general uh, back when the baby boom emerged. Uh, But the baby boom is interesting, too, because they were less likely than their parents to participate in institutions, to be religious, things along those lines. And that trend actually continued uh, and to some extent accelerated with younger generations. And so you have younger generations now that are much less likely than the baby boomers to participate in institutions, to belong to political parties, to go to church, uh, to serve in the military. Uh, there are all these ways in which their focal points are different than the baby boomers were at their age or the baby boomers are now. Uh, younger people are much better educated. Uh, again, the baby boomers started this trend of people going to college uh, after high school, in part because there weren't enough jobs, there wasn't enough to do. Uh, and so they're accommodated a large part by going to college. Uh, but that 
that that trend is also continued and accelerated. So younger people are now much more likely to have attended college uh, than were baby boomers. They're better educated. And so you can see also how these things uh, can overlap with politics. You know, if you are less religious, you did attend college and you're non-white, the odds are very good that you're a Democrat. Uh, and if that's to a large extent why younger people are have more heavily Democratic than older people. So there are all these ways in which these demographic differences can manifest in other places. Mm-hmm. Too. Thank you. It, and so let's so you referenced immigration, and, and certainly that's part of this idea of race today. What what is it about the boomer identity that uh, it tells us a, an awful lot about what's happening today in politics and, and culture. There are there are a few things. I mean, the the extent to which the baby boom manifests political power isn't simply through partisan politics, but it does show up in partisan politics. So, you know, we have two major political parties in the United States, as people are aware, and we have a lot of people who are registered independents who skew younger. Uh, but within the parties themselves, the Democratic Party skews much younger than the Republican Party. So it is not the case that, that the baby boom generation is, is vastly more Republican uh, than uh, than it is Democratic, but it is the case that the Republican Party is has a much higher composition of baby boomers than does the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party skews younger. Uh, so we see the effect here of when we think about conservative America in this moment, we tend to think about older, whiter Americans, uh, not without justification. And that is a group that tends to overlap with the baby boom. And it is also the case uh, that some of the intergenerational tension we see is rooted in partisan politics. uh, And therefore, you see younger Democrats uh, looking at these older, whiter Americans and sort of assuming that they are broadly conservative, even though that's not really the case. We are with Philip Bump. Philip Bump is author of the new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Philip Bump is a national columnist for The Washington Post. Prior to that, he led politics coverage for The Atlantic Wire. He's worked as a designer at Adobe Systems. We really appreciate your time today, Philip Bump. It's, uh, uh, I think, a really interesting time for my audience to be thinking about m- much of this that you that you write about in, in The Aftermath. I'm 66. Many in my audience are in that same kind of boomer sweet spot. Um, I guess the oldest boomers are probably 77. The youngest are probably 20 years, maybe younger than that. I believe you're a Gen Xer, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So where does your own fascination um, with my generation come from? It actually started with general fascination about the generation. So I, when I worked at the Atlantic Wire, uh, there was a one of those these sort of dust ups over well, who's what generation and when does it start and when does it end. And so I dug into it a little bit and I actually reached out to the Census Bureau. And the Census Bureau was pretty direct and they said, "Look, we don't we don't do these generations. The only generation we pay attention to is the baby boom because it is demographically distinct. You can see the surge in births in '46. You can see it in 1964. That's the generation that we identify as a generation. Everything else is sort of made up. And so I talked to other people and yeah, that was the consensus that these are these are things that we invent in part because it's fun and in part because it's useful uh and so that was how i came to an interest in generations broadly then when i started looking you know i write about politics on a day-to-day basis for the washington post and you know i was increasingly noticing these tensions between younger and older americans and i 
as I started to think about the book, I was thinking about it through the lens of generations. And as I started to actually research it, I discovered that I was vastly underestimating the scale of the baby boom and the scale of its effects on the country. Uh, and it really does, you know, it is, there is no perfect explanation for why America looks the way it does culturally or politically in the moment. But this is a very good one. This, this divide between older and younger America, which manifests in a lot of different ways. Uh, but again, the, the, the trigger for it was, I sort of stumbled onto the fact that we just invented these generations anyway, uh, but it is a useful way of framing old versus young in a way that is very, very useful in the moment, I think. You have this really interesting way that you talk about social security, the entitlement program, and I, and I want to talk about that for just a moment with you. So many of my generation, as well as politicians, uh, political debate um, claims that um, – that the third rail of American politics is social security as an entitlement. And it may not be around for us in other generations. You say in the book that the social security fund is meant to be drawn down and that while we don't want the fund to go to zero, it is supposed to be going down. Could you explain that and tell us a little bit more about how uh, that really works and, and what you mean by all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it is it is a frame for viewing the current debate that's useful. Uh, you're right that if the, if the fund has zero money in it, that's not helpful, right? You know that that you know we, we're drawing it down is one thing, but it, spending it completely isn't another thing entirely. But yeah, there's a lot of consternation about the fact that it is being depleted rapidly. But the entire point of funds like that is that as people are working and of a working age, and this isn't me. This is I spoke with Monique Morrissey from the from the Economic Policy Institute who's much more knowledgeable about this this sort of thing. So I'm sort of adopting uh, her frame, which I think is accurate. Uh, but, you know, you have the baby boom emerge. They are all in the workforce. They are working uh, and they are, um, you know, they're paying money into these funds, paying money to these governmental systems. And now they are retiring. And, you know, the, the youngest baby boomers at this point are uh, 59 years old. They're going to be retiring soon. A number of baby boomers already have retired and they are drawing down on this money. And so, yeah, there was this huge thrust of people this you know again this this big surge in americans and they poured a bunch of money into the system and now there's this big surge of americans heading for the exits and as they go they're pulling money out of the system and so we, we expect to see this bubble the, the analogy that i use throughout the book and I, again i didn't invent uh but is is of a the baby boom was like a python swallowing a pig the python being the american system and, and the pig being this huge clot of of people uh that were born in this time period uh but you can see that, that same that same silhouette if you will in the social security system we have this big swelling of the python as people are pouring money into the system and now it's coming back out uh, so this is the pattern we've seen over and over again the question, to some extent, is how we manage the landing on this, uh, mm -hmm. which obviously is still up in the air. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I just thought that was really helpful. The book, the book is wonderful. I really want to recommend it uh, to my audience. Again, it's titled "The Aftermath: The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America." Thanks again, Philip uh, Bump, for reading uh, a section of Chapter Three. You, mm -hmm. you, you kind of ended that section with the kind of reference to the OK Boomer meme. And um, and you make you make the point in the book that there are an awful lot of tensions in American society between old and young generations. Um, uh, truth is, memes, taunts like "OK Boomer" probably don't help, but neither do you know my generation's lack of understanding of um, other generations, you know, behind us and um, 
and certainly you know issues of today i think uh, my my generation needs to be more more on top of that how how do how do you want the book to help us understand what's kind of happening today and and maybe improve things well i think there are, there are a few ways one is just simply recognizing that the scale of the baby boom affects the way in which it manifests to other people uh, the example I like to use here is housing right so there is a lot of frustration among younger americans about the lack of housing in the united states and this assumption that baby boomers are sort of putting their fingers on the scale right and you know actively locking people out and it's but that's a sort of a, that is attributing to baby boomers collectively i think an un fair assessment of a, a very individualized decision-making process that happens at an enormous scale. And by which I mean a lot of older people were able to buy houses when houses were less expensive and now see those houses as a storehouse of value. And so as they approach retirement, a lot of Americans see their houses as something that's going to help contribute uh, to their retirement and allow them to, to pay for their retirement. Uh, and so they are very uh, worried about maintaining the value of their homes and, of, you know, very worried about home prices in general, because this is a thing that is going to contribute to their nest egg once they're once they're retired. As such, they on an individual basis when presented with the opportunity to uh, approve new housing in the area, to build an apartment building down the block, they are likely to oppose that because they want to protect the perceived value of their home. And they worry that by building that apartment house, then that, that the value of their own house will go down. As such, there are a lot of people that are making these individual decisions about what uh, they, in order to protect their own storehouse of value, uh, that has a negative national effect on the housing market and increases housing prices and makes it harder for young people to own homes. So this is this is a a way of looking at this frustration among younger people about the lack of housing, which shifts it from being about the baby boomers sort of being, you know, proactively nasty toward young people. And instead, recognizing that if you had a much smaller generation, this would be much less of a problem because there would be fewer of these people making these sorts of decisions. And it just happens to be that they own a lot of homes and they are all, you know, they are uh, a lot of them are making similar decisions in this regard. And the scale of the generation has this effect less than these individual decisions that are being made. And once you recognize that scale as being a critical factor to the things that are happening, you see it everywhere and you recognize that a lot of the things we attribute to baby boomers on an individual basis are instead a function of their their uh, collective scale. Well, in your last chapter of the book titled Getting From Here to Wherever There Is, you write that the first boomer, Kathleen Casey Kirschling, is worried and upset about the future. Upset about the future is is the quote there. What happens to us when the boom fizzles out? What's next? Well, I mean, this is the, the thrust of the book, so I'll encourage people to read, read the book. Um, you know, mm -hmm. but I mean, uh, the mm -hmm. yeah, I want to encourage that. You know, I try to be cautious about making predictions uh, for a variety of reasons, including that it's very humbling to to look at past predictions of what's going to happen and, and recognizing how how wildly off the mark they they might have been. Uh, so that said, w what happens? I think it depends on what we're talking about. I, I mean, economically, I think that there's a real question about the extent to which the the 
uh, aging of America, the fact that uh, a larger proportion of the country is going to be old, uh, the extent to which we're going to be able to care for everyone. I think we will, but we just sort of we're going to go through a sort of rocky period as as the pig approaches that tail end of the pythons to, to continue that analogy. Uh, I think politically it's sort of up in the air. I think that you know Republicans are justifiably worried about whether younger people will end up supporting the party. I think the party probably will end up shifting uh, in order to better meet the demands of younger voters as younger voters make up a higher percentage of the uh, population. But I also think that a lot of what happens after the baby boom is going to be decided right now by the baby boom while they're still in power. The decisions they make around things like climate change and housing and education, you know, all of these things are being affected by uh, a, a uh, cadre of politicians who tend to skew much older than the population itself uh, and, you know, who need to be thinking about that, that legacy politically. Thank you. I, I do appreciate that. I, I, I realize that, that that's a, you know, that's a bigger question that, that is really the, at the essence of the book. And, and you've been so generous to, to read and talk to us about the book. It, it is wonderful. I want to encourage my audience to go out there and check this out. Again, the title is The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Philip Bump has been our guest today. Philip Bump, thanks again for your time, for your generosity. Congrats on the book and thank you for all the research, because I think it is is wonderful and it's it's very helpful for us to to have this, uh, especially during these times. But uh, my best to you, and please, as you write more about this subject, we'd we'd love to have you back and talk about it. Of course, thank you very much for having me. My thanks to author and journalist Philip Bump. Philip Bump generously has read from his new book, The Aftermath: The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Thank you, Philip. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe, which, as you know, I am mentioning in every show because I want to bring attention to the issue of assault rifles, which aren't safe in anyone's hands but the military and law enforcement. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, schools. Please, let's work together to eliminate assault rifles. And let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody. And I will see you next week.